My friends, would you please stand as we hear the Lord's word read this morning. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through 13, or 9 through 13 rather, looking at verses 11 through 13. Again, this is the Lord's word. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But When Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. My friends, this is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word and pray that your blessing now be upon your servant and upon these, your people. Those who are here and those who are joining from far uh, away, we ask that um, your word would have its impact, that it would uh, affect what you want affected. And again, we pray that you would keep the evil one from stealing away the seed of the gospel. Give us strength, we pray, and help us now to listen to your voice, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have seen the end of Pride Month. Um, and it was a subject that was brought up, actually I brought it up, at Camp Judson. Um, in God's providence, I was assigned or given the, the, the topic of marriage in the family. The overall theme of the camp was the goodness of God, and one of the goodnesses of God that we see are marriage in the family. And so poor Molly had to listen to a compilation of different sermons that I had delivered before, and I brought up the issue of the LGBTQ, knowing that they are affecting, at least I believe that it was affecting even our church children, and I was not disappointed. Uh, the question is, how are we supposed to treat the LGBTQ community? This was actually a question that was addressed to me at the lunch table one day, as a young lady said to me, I have a couple of friends who are transitioning from girls to boys and they have preferred pronouns that they would really like me to use and I don't want to make them feel bad. And my instruction was do not use their preferred pronouns, call them by their names and she said, but it's going to make them feel bad and I said, yes, it will make them feel bad, but you might be the only person who scatters a little bit of sense in their world, and that will bring them back. And so I find that we are struggling, and uh, we've, we've all know people or have family members who are struggling in this way. And the question is, how am I supposed to treat them? Should I use their preferred pronouns? Should I just embrace them? Should I just say, well, we'll let the Lord sort it out? Or should I just not engage them at all? Maybe I had to just steer clear of the whole thing, um, and, and maybe I'm justified in just hating them because they're reprobates. I want to remind you of something, too. The LGBTQ sin and mindset is not the only sinful mindset in the world. Amen? 
it's not the only thing we're dealing with. It just happens to be the most prominent thing because that's what we hear about most often, especially in the month of June. As we look at this this passage, um, we're looking at the rationale of why our Lord ate with riffraff, why he ate with sinners. And it's important. We have a story to tell to the nations, but generally speaking, oftentimes we don't. And maybe, maybe it's just in the Reformed circles. I don't know. Maybe it's the mindset that, well, the Lord's going to save people, and I don't have to be so concerned about him because he's not going to lose any of his own. And I would agree with you, he's not going to lose any of his own. But that, does that take the, the relieve me of the pressure of saying, of being concerned for my neighbors on my right or on my left? Sometimes we err in this mindset. As we look at Romans 9 this morning, or Matthew 9, rather, we see here that Jesus has healed the paralytic. Um, He calls Matthew into service, and that Jesus dines with sinners. We must remember that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Being that we are his people, his body, it makes sense to think that our purpose in this world is to bear witness to the sinner, to show the mercy of God and Jesus Christ to the world, to follow our Lord's example, who came from heaven, laying aside his glory in order to redeem those who were made, um, who were under the curse of death, in order to be a curse in our place, that we might be uh, in him blessed. And Matthew points out very clearly in this passage that Jesus Christ associated with sinners. He associated with sinners not in order to condone their sin. And I find that this is somewhere a point that sometimes you hear people say things like this. And I want to caution us to think, why did Jesus eat and dine with sinners? It was not to condone or to approve of their sin. It was not to set for us an example of tremendous toleration. Look how gracious Jesus is. He never says anything about anyone's sin. He just enjoys a good time with people. Is that really what the Savior was about? That's not what he was about. Rather, it is to bring the light of the gospel of God's mercy to shine on their dark world. Now, again, we're dealing with this, this Pride Month just behind us, and what is, what is the attitude? Oh, go away. Stop it. We, we want nothing to do with you. And, and I would say that as a culture and in our towns and based on laws concerning lewdness and lasciviousness that the Christian is obligated to push back. We're pushing back against these events because they're harmful, they're dangerous, and yet the people pushing these agendas are image bearers lost and dead in their sins. And so we find ourselves not condoning, not approving, and at the same time hurting for. When I I shared with you, I went to that uh, I filmed this drag show, and it was the first time um, up close and personal, I thought to myself, they are delusional. Deceived. They're deceived into thinking that these things are permissible, and I felt compassion for them, a compassion that I had never felt before. It's always been discussed, um, but I felt a compassion because I thought these poor souls They are deceived and they are stuck. And they think that the way to help them 
belong is to embrace it and say it's a good thing. But that's just the opposite. And that was my counsel to this young lady. Don't, don't go along, but love them, tell them the truth, and be prepared to take your metaphysical, hopefully uh, only, uh, hits to the nose. Because that's where we are, friends. This is our nation is gone crazy. And you, sitting in here and sitting in churches across the nation where the word of God is preached and where the Lord's people gather to hear the Lord's word, you carry the message that is able to help our neighbors who are deceived. This is what we see with Jesus Christ. He comes, he, 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 he speaks to Matthew, follow me. And what does Matthew do? What any good newborn Christian does, he goes, I got some friends you got to talk to. <laughs> and he throws a party. And they come. Jesus is going to be there. And they come. It happened again. We're told that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, look here, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. The world seems very put together, and yet truly without God, they are without hope. It's as we learned in Sunday school, there's a very big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness being that which is based upon what's happening to us, but a joy even in the midst of trial can't be stripped because we belong to the Lord. So we draw a very basic application that you as Christians, as Christians, we are not to be cloistered or confined to our homes or to this building uh, selecting places where we know they aren't. We need to go, and again, I'm not just speaking about the LGBTQ community, but I'm speaking about the lost. We're speaking about all of these. We are not to avoid them, but to engage them. Jesus does not want us being worldly, that is, following after the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, or abiding by the pride of life, but to go out into the world to go out of the world, to avoid the world, is impossible. And Paul says this very thing in 1 Corinthians 5.10. You are to associate with the world as uncomfortable as that makes you because this is what Christ has done in order to redeem us. How will they know Jesus Christ? How will the world know Jesus Christ if we don't talk to them, eat with them, and play alongside of them? I know that's a that's an uncomfortable thing. You know, you go down here to Blowdorn and and you're buying supplies, and you stand there at the desk, and all the guys are just talking, and you're talking to customers as you're standing there. That's a wonderful place to just go and spend lots of money and visit with people. It is. It's where we go. It's one of those places where you say, "How you doing?" What's happening with you? What are you doing? How's your family? And one thing leads to another. We're very quick, and we forget that people need the Lord. If the church doesn't reach out to sinners and people that make us feel uncomfortable, the church will potentially, theoretically, would cease to exist. I had a professor who said this, that the church is always one generation away from extinction. Now, I know in the sovereignty of God, the church will never cease to exist. But we also know that he has commanded us to be his hands and feet and his witnesses. And so 
Um, why don't we reach out to sinners? And why were the Pharisees so bothered with Jesus dining with them? Uh, fundamentally, I believe it comes down to bad doctrine. And I think this bad doctrine has made its way into the church. Always good to be reminded of this. Um, the bad doctrine is this. The bad theological premise is this. That grace is for good people like us. Grace is for good people like us. We think wrong about ourselves, and therefore we begin to think wrong about God's grace. How are we supposed to think of those sinners out there? How should we be looking at the LGBTQ community? How are we supposed to be looking at them? My friends, it's a mindset, and this is the mindset that we must have, that you ought not to think of yourself as being any different than they are. They are no different than you and me. Jesus was different than them. But you and I, um, for you and I, it, it is we are no different. So we see this again. Matthew says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Remember, there are many tax collectors and sinners had come and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Here are these tax, these Pharisees, they make this sinful distinction. We have Jesus, according to Matthew's records, eating and dining and reclining at a table in a house in Capernaum with tax collectors who were notorious for stealing, who were uh, considered renegades and who were unpatriotic in that they sided with Rome versus looking after the Jews. And we are told that there were other sinners who were infamous for their sin. The question is, um, they, they bring this question, and it was probably after the fact that the, of the dinner party, having seen whom Jesus had eaten with, they ask their question of his disciples. Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, the question is not actually a question. Rather, it is an accusation. They don't seek an answer, but seize upon the opportunity to level a criticism or a complaint. You brothers know something about this. Your wife says to you, you're not coming into this house with those muddy boots, are you? And it's not a, it's not a real question. It's a, uh, you're not coming into this house with those muddy boots. And you go, no, I wasn't coming in with those muddy boots. They're asking a question. It looks like a question, but it's actually a criticism. We know this because this, uh, that it's an accusation because Jesus does not answer a question but gives a rebuttal to their sinful attitude. What is this accusation? Because of what Jesus did, um, eating and dining with the tax collectors and sinners, um, they had a conflict, or he had a conflict with their theology, the theology of the Pharisees, with their understanding of God and who he is and how he operates and his thoughts. I want you to consider their theology for a moment, uh, the, the theology of the Pharisees. We read this in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Really hard to argue against Psalm 1, isn't it? It's the scripture. 
I want to say that the Pharisees were not entirely bad guys. You probably would have, especially many of you in this congregation, would have really enjoyed probably the Pharisees. They were theological conservatives. Uh, They believed the scriptures were true, that they were the word of God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles and angels and, and all of these things, just like you and me. They were zealous for the laws of the scriptures, and they encouraged obedience to the law of God. We could learn a lot from this. There's much that is commendable with the Pharisees. Their idea was we need to get back to the word of God. So what exactly is the problem? The problem with the Pharisees was in this, and sometimes we are guilty of nothing less than this very thing. In their zeal to preserve and promote the law of God, they put up hedges to keep people from getting too close to potentially breaking the law of God. So we have mentioned this before, that there was a distance, a certain distance you could walk on the, on the Sabbath day, 2,000 cubits. And so if they would put a board from one house to another, you could extend your distance because it was like I'm still in the safe zone. So if you go to a place like Miami, and I'm sure it's in other places as well, you will, have, you will see a wire running around downtown uh, Miami where you can, you can see where people are supposed to walk. These are for the Jews. This is how we keep the law. We're not breaking the law when we do these things. Or there's how much you could carry on, on the Lord's Day. And so you've got people coming on the Sabbath day. They're carrying uh, stretchers with people in it. Except the Jews said nothing heavier than a half a dried fig was permissible to carry. Now your friend's going to have to be awfully bad off to be less than a half a dried fig, right? Um, so they were considered, and, and again, they put these things in there. It's like we say a 40-hour work week, right? I don't know where 40 hours came up with. I mean, it's a decent number. Really? Not 38? If I'm not working 40 and I only work 38, does that make me lazy? Does it make, <laughs> does it make, me, does it make me less than that? Josh is shaking his head. Yes, that makes you less than that. <laughs> if I work 45, does that make me, or, or, or times, or, or is, is it just work at a paycheck? Or is, does work include other things, like maybe taking care of your home, taking care of your family? Maybe instead of fixing a window, cutting the grass, maybe you need to go administer to your child and take him out for an ice cream cone. So, so you see, we come up with these rules, and we say, you do these rules, and now you're copacetic. Now you're good with God. And we, we do that. We do that in the Protestant church. I've seen it often. We do that uh, oftentimes. This is, this is what they're doing. They miss the point of the law. And they thought that they were able to keep it to the fullest extent uh, that the Lord had commanded. So, again, Jesus would rebuke them in, in Matthew 23, 23, saying that they had tithed their dill, their mint, and their cumin, but had neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They should do one without neglecting the other, is what Jesus got at. They were meticulous in their law observance as they had slipped into a mindset that God's grace is bestowed upon those who keep themselves unstained and unpolluted by the world. And what was Jesus Christ, our Savior, doing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's doing this. He is, Jesus, how, here you are, this master, you do all these incredible things, 
And what kind of example are you setting to your disciples? We're concerned about holiness, and you know you'll get around these people. You might sin. You might laugh at their off-color joke. You might, you might be tempted into drinking too much with them. Some, some sinful woman may flirt with you, and how's that going to look? You should stay away from those things. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the, the, the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Again, we might summarize their theology in this way, that grace is for good people. Those who obey receive favor and blessing. Listen to this footnote from the Geneva Study Bible. Helpful little note. They write this. The New Testament views Christian obedience as the practice of good works. Christians are to be rich in good works. A good deed is one done according to the right standard, God's revealed will, from a right motive, love for God and others, and with a right purpose, the glory of God. Legalism is a distortion of obedience that can never produce good works in this sense. It skews motive and purpose, seeing good deeds as ways to merit God's favor. It can be arrogant and contemptuous of those who do not labor in the same way. Finally, legalism's self-advancing purpose squeezes humble kindness and compassion out of the heart. Gerhardus Voss said this, Legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship it obeys but it does not adore I'm going to read that again legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship it obeys but it does not adore these Pharisees obeyed but they did not do it out of a sense of adoration for the God who saved them that's the danger we fall into in the Lord's church we become well-oiled, efficient, obedient disciples whose hearts are far away from the Lord. And that becomes a dangerous thing. And it's that mindset that makes us look at the LGBTQ community and say, oh, in disgust, I want nothing to do with you. Look at those lawbreakers. Uh, Cross-dressing is an abomination. To sleep with a man is an abomination. And these things are true. They, they're true. That's what the Lord says. But the Lord says a lot, doesn't he? Again, listen to Psalm 1. How are we to understand uh, Psalm 1? The psalmist does not delight in the things of the world, but in the law of the Lord. He does not go and hang out with the riff, riffraff of the world because he values their opinions, insights, and just all, all around loves, uh, loves their company. He is blessed and therefore he is a new creature with changed affections. His delight is in the things of the Lord. So he's not drawn to the world because he loves their sin. That's, that's Psalm 1. The man or the woman born again, born from above, does not enjoy the sin of the world. He's repulsed by it. 
But the Pharisees, believing that one is tainted by association with sinners like these, believe that Jesus is soiling himself and leading as a teacher his disciples down a bad path and corrupting them. Therefore, if you want to be devoted to God and a faithful witness of his, you won't go where you mingle with sinners. It is guilt by association. I will look like I enjoy sin if I'm around people who are sinners. And that's, that's many Christians' fears. You know, what if they see me talking to this guy with tattoos and, and steel balls stuffed into his skin and, and all? They might think that I approve of those things. I can't have people thinking I approve of those things. What would they say about the pastor who was talking to someone wearing black leather and dark eyeliner and, and dressed in a slinky gown? Hopefully you would say, hopefully you would pray for me that I would be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, this is where we have to go as a church. Jesus Christ did not save us so that we could stay cloistered and far away from the world. I'm not telling you that we enjoy their sin, but I am saying that the only hope this world, this nation, and that LGBTQ community has is that someone would reach them with the truth of Jesus Christ. It was concerning that as I spoke at camp, there was one person who said, gee, I felt like he was, he was encouraging us to hate them. And I was so thankful for the other counselors who said, what? What were you listening to? He specifically said, you're supposed to love them and pray for them and witness to them. You see, we have this thing in our minds that to love somebody, I just have to go along with everything they say and do everything, capitulate to everything they say and believe. And I go, no, you don't. Right? There's a, there's a crazy meme going around on Facebook. That's actually a true meme that every time you think I disagree with you, I hate you. That's just absurd. I can still love my neighbor and disagree vehemently with him. That's where we are. I have to love my neighbor. I have to love my enemies. This is what the Lord has told me. I have no option in the matter, Christian. This is what we are supposed to do. This is what we are wrestling with in this. The question is, I have for you, is what does your heart delight in? Are you drawn to the world? Are you living for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh? You see it, you've got to have it, or you've got to have her. Are you living by the boastful pride of life? Are you living for respect, prestige, honor? Or is the Lord, his law, his things, his worship, loving your neighbor, giving and not simply taking, are these what you are living for? My friends, the concern I have for the church, for many churches, is that we look an awful lot like Christians, but we don't have a whole lot of love for the sinful. And that is something for us to repent of. This was the Pharisees. He thought of himself as being so much better than others and so much more worthy of blessing because of what he did and did not do. His pious appearance and words were a cloak for his selfish ambition. He failed to see that there is none righteous, and that included himself, and therefore he had no business looking down his nose at the tax collector or the sinner's. We ought not to think of ourselves as being any different than the sinner, for you and I, we are sinners too, saved by the grace of God.
So how do we approach this? We, of all people, should recognize what they need because we were there ourselves. You are to love them, and thus you are to serve the Lord. But when Jesus, we read, when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now here we have the Lord's theology, which is the right theology, the one we should be conforming to and being transformed by. He makes a very uh, he makes a statement. It's a figurative statement of fact. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Again, the Pharisees believed that the tax collectors and sinners they looked at them as though they are distasteful, repugnant, sickening individuals. Get me away from them, and they are upset that Jesus has had such close meeting with them. And then Jesus gives this illustration from life. Healthy people don't need doctors. Only sick people need doctors. That's the way it goes, isn't it? Any of you like to go and spend your hard-earned dollars at the doctor's office when you're not sick? What, what, what do we do, especially as men? I could be growing a third ear in the middle of my forehead, and I would say to my wife, you got some nail clippers or something you can handle this with? Why don't you go? I'm not going to the doctor. Spend that money for something you could do. Just clip it off. You know, this is we don't do this. We don't go to doctors unless we are sick. And it's only the sick who need doctors. Why would Jesus go and eat with the, uh, the, the Pharisees uh, when they are healthy? But who does he go and eat with? He goes to those who are sick, who are pathetic and without hope. My friends, good people don't need forgiveness, do they? People who think that they're good, they have need of nothing. But who is it who cries out to Jesus Christ? It's those whose lives are a mess. And what a friend to sinners Jesus Christ is. What a friend he is to the sinner. He eats with these sinners and tax collectors because they need salvation from sin. Why must you associate with them and not think yourself better? My friends, because people need the Lord. That's our job as a church. People need the Lord. We're going to have a booth again this year at the county fair. If you've never come and joined me at the county fair in that booth, you should consider doing it. You know who goes to the fair? Sinners. And they come by and they've got their they've got all their problems, all their baggage, and all their challenges. And you know, you sit and you just talk to them. And you pray the whole while. You have Sharon Starks praying for you at home. <laughs> and we go out there and we show them Jesus Christ. Won't you become tainted? Won't you be polluted by coming in contact with such, such sinners? Doesn't this violate the teaching of Psalm 1? Rather, friends, it is the fulfillment of Psalm 1. Jesus delighted in the law of the Lord. So Jesus gives this rebuke and this command. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And here he quotes uh, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, 
slightly different verbiage, but same meaning. So here he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In Hosea 6, 6, which is what he is quoting, he says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's challenging them, get out of, get away from this rote formality versus obedience from a heart that knows the Lord. The loyalty is not to people. The loyalty is to God. That, that's what God wants. The Pharisees were to go and to learn this lesson, to understand and apply to themselves what this means. Quit deluding themselves with empty forms of religiosity and get the genuine point of religion that is of true religion. Listen to the scriptures. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Again, you know this in regard to Saul. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David writes, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Do you know the Lord? Do you know what the Lord is? Of course you do. Sinner, saved by grace. Have you tasted of the kindness of the Lord? Have you forgotten what it was like when you'd go to bed at night and you would be weeping and fearful of dying and waking up in hell? But it was the Lord's kindness that led you to repentance. What does the Lord want from us? He wants more than just an outward performance of ritual. The Lord would have us love these people. That is the fulfillment of the law of the Lord, is it not? Do we not read that from Matthew chapter 22? What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the rest of the commandments, the law of God. What does the righteous man do? Blessed is the man who does not what walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. What does that law teach us? To love. To love. How is it that I can put my trust in righteousness of my own when I don't love the person to my right or left? Those who love are those who are loyal to the covenant of God they know the Lord those who love know the Lord and Jesus delighted in the law of the Lord he observes this law perfectly by eating with sinners not because he delighted in their course or suggestive talk but because he delighted in others coming to know forgiveness of sin of knowing them knowing life in him of becoming worshipers of God who is our only hope of true and abiding happiness. That's what Jesus was concerned about, thus fulfilling the law of God. The Pharisees needed to learn this, and they were good with the sacrifices and performance of ritual, but their hearts were cold as ice. Now you may be thinking, I am no Pharisee. I'm not hung up on tithing or Sabbath observance or Ten Commandments. Um, Understand that Jesus never, ever, 
bless people for obedience to legitimate commandments. Jesus never blasted the Pharisees because they obeyed. It, he blasted them because they neglected the weightier provisions of the law. In other words, he never says, stop your tithing of dill, mint, and cumin. He never says that. He goes, I wish you'd done the one without neglecting the other. Does the Lord want you to obey? Of course he does. Am I going to stand up here and tell you it's okay to disobey the Lord? I will never say that. But if we're only keeping certain laws and we're not fulfilling the spirit of the law, which is love for our neighbor, then we're missing the boat. So a person's a Pharisee of the worst sort when they shun the world because of its sin and fail to see their need of Christ and move towards them to bring them the words of life. It is the sick and the dying that need physicians. And so Jesus gives finally this literal statement of his ministry. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Why eat with them? Why talk to them in the grocery store line? Why talk to them at Blodorn? Why, why have a barbecue with them? Why go and meet with them? They need Jesus Christ. And what better person is there to take the gospel to them than you? Or you? What better person? This is exactly what we're supposed to do. And we're not delighting in the sin. And you don't have to worry what anyone thinks. Don't delight in the sin, but delight in the Lord and, and love them that they might come to delight in the Lord as well. The good person has no need of Jesus, he thinks. It's like calling a man to abandon a ship that he does not believe is sinking. But Jesus ate with sinners because sinners are bound for hell apart from his undeserved favor. And Jesus came into this world, this world, to save sinners. And he urges us, my friends, everywhere, he urges us to carry this message and urge people to repent and believe the gospel that they might have new life in him. If you'll bow with me, we'll pray, and then we'll observe the supper. We thank you, Father, again for your word, and thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this table in front of us, again reminding us of your kindness. It was not we who saved ourselves. It was not we who, because of decisions that we had made that were better than other people that saved us but it was your kindness that has led us to repentance it was your kindness that caused these dead hearts to come alive and so we come to you father confessing once again our sin and our cold hearts towards our neighbors and we find ourselves father in this awkward place in our world now where sin is openly avowed and, and embraced and celebrated and your people can't celebrate these things. Keep us, Father, I pray, from having cold hearts and embittered hearts towards them, but that we would look at them, Father, with eyes of compassion, just as you have had compassion and pity upon us, that we would do likewise. We thank you for this table in front of us now and pray that your blessing will be upon it. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would encourage us in the grace that we have received, that we might go like our Savior and engage the lost, that they too might come. Would you, Lord, please open doors for your gospel? Would you please give us boldness? Help us, Lord, not to be afraid of what people think of us, 
we pray that we will take our hits um, as good soldiers of the Lord Jesus and that we will not be afraid. We know that a great day is coming where we will be with you and enjoy you for all eternity. But that day is not just yet as we continue to labor and strive in this world. Bless our efforts to advance your kingdom. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.